0: Matthew Kahn is a professor at the UCLA Institute of the Environment, the Department of Economics, and the Department of Public Policy, of which I am proud to say I graduated 15 years ago from. He is also a Luskin scholar at the UCLA School of Public Affairs uh, Luskin Center for Innovation. He is the author uh, also of Green Cities, Urban Growth and the Environment, and Climatopolis, How Our Cities Will Thrive in the Hotter Future. Please give a warm reception to Mr. Matthew Kahn. Folks, good evening. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, but uh, you're looking at a man who doesn't have PowerPoint, and so we, we will see what happens, but, but I'm delighted to be here, and I'm grateful for you uh, showing up on a Tuesday night. I know life is busy, and I hope that this is a good hour together, but I'm, I'm grateful to you, and, I, and it's great to be here. Folks, I, what I want to do in my uh, half hour before we open it up for questions and answers is, is, to, is to frame how I think about Climatopolis now It's that it's been out for two months. So uh, a deep question I'm gonna start with. I, let me walk you through what I'm gonna do in my half hour and see if this interests anyone. I'm gonna try to answer the question, why did I write this book? You might be asking yourself that question in half an hour or immediately. I then want to contrast adaptation to climate change with climate change mitigation and and the issues of AB 32 and some of the challenges and opportunities we face. I'm then going to ask a deep question. Why listen to an economist? Folks, I'm married to an economist. How do people feel about economists these days? Is there love in the room? (laughs) Hmm, Okay, I've learned about you. The, I'm then going to talk about chess, a, a game I don't play well. I'm going to talk about city competition. I'm going to talk about migration and innovation. And then I want to get a little down and dirty talking about the future of Los Angeles, uh, a subject near and dear to our heart. I'm going to talk about Homer Simpson and Mr. Spock. I'm going to talk about politicians. And I'm going to talk about my failure to predict the Moscow heat wave of 2010 and whether this proves that I'm no Nostradamus, what it proves, and what lessons and what silver lining there might be, and whether you should listen to any of my predictions at all if I've failed. Up to this point. So, folks, Climatopolis, I wish that I had been tougher on my publisher. The, the subtitle of the book is How Our Cities Will Thrive in the Hotter Future. Did I pick that topic, that, that uh, subtitle? My subtitle was The Future of Cities in Our Hotter World, but I was deemed unsexy. And so I am um, a, a, but that's really my starting point. A, I have a nine year old son. And I think about what his life will be like in Los Angeles in the year 2050. What is the future of our great city? And this book is not solely about Los Angeles. It's about all cities. It's a little bit pretentious in that way. I think that there's some general lessons that apply across all cities. And so I wrote Climatopolis. My tenure at UCLA is at the Institute of the Environment. I spend a lot of time in an interdisciplinary environment talking to climate scientists. I'm deeply concerned about the challenge of climate change. And as a, a mildly intellectual person, I'm thinking hard about what is the future of Los Angeles and all our great cities in the face of climate change. Are we going to take it on the jaw and be knocked out like against Muhammad Ali in the 60s? Or are there any, is there any room for optimism? about when we anticipate a challenge, but when we have some lead time, when we are risk-averse uh, and aware of the challenges we face, that there might be strategies that we can embrace to help protect ourselves and our loved ones to build safer cities in the face of the new blows that Mother Nature will throw. And, and, and so that is really the starting point of Climatopolis. It's a debate I have with myself, but I wanted to have in public, about our collective ability and capitalism's role in helping us respond to an anticipated but challenging challenge of climate change. Folks, adaptation versus mitigation. Critics of my book have said the following about me. They've said, this guy is trouble. Folks, do I look like trouble? (laughs) A mild-mannered professor, losing my hair, gaining weight. I'm, I'm not trouble. They've said this guy is trouble for the following reason. Folks, did we succeed in Copenhagen in 2009 to pass a global carbon deal? No. Did the Senate vote yes on Waxman-Markey to do something about climate change in the summer of 2010? No. I had hoped when President Obama was elected, and I still have hope, but diminishing hope, that at the federal level there would be credible action. Because we haven't taken any steps to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions, and with the growth of China and India's and the rest of the developing world's per capita income, which I view as a good thing in terms of helping people to escape poverty, but an unintended consequence of the rest of the world getting rich is the title of chapter one, which my son repeats to everybody, too much gas. (laughs) I, I am among friends. Being a realist that we have talked a good game, but we haven't walked the walk on mitigating our greenhouse gas emissions. We have to take adaptation seriously. And my book comes up with some surprising optimism about our future. I'm not Ronald Reagan, I don't believe in wishful thinking, but my training in economics and taking some looks at the futures I'll argue in my remaining time, make me optimistic about uh, that we will be able to address some of the challenges of climate change. Some liberal bloggers have called me a dangerous man for the following reason. They said if you read this guy's book this could lull you into thinking we don't need to mitigate now. If we think we can anticipate if I, excuse me if we think we can adapt in any way shape or form that reduces the urgency of now to mitigate now. I understand what these bloggers are saying, but as a social scientist, I need to know the truth. I am not a political pawn in some bigger fight. I would love to see us simultaneously mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions and to get ready to adapt, but I'm a realist. We've talked a good game, but outside of California with AB 32, we've made no credible efforts in the developed world or the developing world to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Given that climate change is coming, we have to be realistic and talk and think through how to climate-proof our cities both privately and through government action to help protect us against the coming tough days. Folks, why listen to an economist? Did we predict the mortgage meltdown? No. Uh, what are the, where else? Did we predict how deep this recession would be? No. It's a good, tough crowd. Economists are useful people in thinking, uh, we are the rational social science, that we believe that people respond to incentives and that most people respond to information by changing their behavior. Folks, a prime example. Phil Leslie, when he was a professor at UCLA, wrote a very interesting paper. Have all of you seen the, the, the hygiene report cards, these A, Bs, and Cs that our restaurants get? Phil Leslie documented that diarrhea in Los Angeles plummeted when those report cards became law. The story is on the demand side and the supply side. Folks, how many of you eat at a grade C restaurant? (laughs) Armed with this new information, you made different choices. On the supply side, if you run... So on the demand side, people substituted from grade C to grade A restaurants and reduced their exposure to waterborne disease. On the supply side, if I'm the owner of a restaurant with a C grade, I might call in the exterminators or ask my guys to wear hairnets or do what has to be done to get a better rating for my restaurant. But this simple approach of providing information changed behavior and helped to reduce public health threats in Los Angeles. And that's going to be a theme. Folks, I believe in specialization. It's up to the climate scientists to, and, I, it, and it's up to climate scientists to use the best science out there to predict how different pieces of Los Angeles and different parts of the world will be affected by climate change. At UCLA, I have a colleague, Alex Hall. Folks, think of a checkerboard. He is taking the Los Angeles metropolitan area and he's partitioning it into checkers. And he's asking for individual pieces of Los Angeles, whether it's Santa Monica or far east from here, how will climate change affect different measures of climate, whether it's temperature, rainfall, other dimensions. And that's very useful information to help us plan for our future. As climate scientists generate this new trustworthy information, Rational people, just as we read a newspaper, will update our beliefs based on this information and hopefully make better choices. And hopefully our politicians will too, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Folks, the chess analogy. I'm a bad chess player. If you play the white pieces, when you play chess, you have to think strategically. What is your opponent up to? What is your best move, given what you think your opponent is up to? In the case of climate change, our opponent is Mother Nature, and I don't know if there's intelligent design there, but if we know that we don't know what she's going to do next, that's the beginnings of thinking subtly. If we're risk-averse, how we set up our lives, where we live, what we build our homes out of, what fail-safe devices we have for our families, when we have an unpredictable opponent, If you're naive enough to think that your opponent, Mother Nature, is predictable and that she's going to do what she's always done over the last hundred years because climate change isn't real, you could suffer because of climate change. But we are self-interested. We only live this life once. We have the right incentives to think through whether we're truly at risk and to process new information generated by the climate scientists to help us make better choices. And this, collectively, reduces the risk we face. City competition. Folks, suppose that a city like Los Angeles goes to hell. And I really hope this doesn't take place. I always buy my homes at the peak of the market. (laughs) Did you know right now you can trade one home in Westwood for 100 Detroit homes? When I wrote that down, the Wall Street Journal published this because I asked a rhetorical question on my blog. Is this a good deal? We have choice in this life. You didn't have to show up tonight. I'm grateful that you did. But the United States has over 300 major cities. And I'm, not, I'm even taking Canada out of the equation for now. If a city like Los Angeles or New York City became unlivable because of climate change, we could move to Fargo. We could rebuild our cities at other latitudes. And so the, migration is a strategy we have access to to protect us in the future. Uh, it, a second strategy we have access to is innovation. Folks, you've all been too kind to mention it, but I'm losing my hair. If I was the only person... I guess we haven't gotten to the Q&A yet. If I was the only person in the world with this challenge, would any for-profit drug company work for me to do the costly basic research to come up with a cure for my problem? Contrast that with climate change. If all 7 billion of us are seeking more energy-efficient air conditioners, are seeking homes that don't flood... Folks, do you smell a market? If seven billion people all demand a product, this is how economists get labeled technological optimist. And my critics have said, this lunatic thinks that climate change causes innovation. On some level, they're right. I am a lunatic. But the chain logic is the following. Because climate change will increase our demand for certain products to protect ourselves, whether it's floatable homes, whether it's food we can store if rainfall stops, whether it's more energy-efficient air conditioners, this creates incentives for capitalists to do the basic innovation. So We have men and women seeking to develop the Tesla right now. In a similar spirit, there will be a huge Google-like profit opportunities created by the demand that climate change will cause. And given enough time, If climate change unfolds gradually, I trust our capitalist firms, not because they're Mother Teresa, but due to the profit motive to do the basic research because they want to get rich. And so the irony is that Homer Simpson's desperation and not planning for climate change actually creates a profit opportunity for the business people to sell him products when he is desperate. It could actually save Homer is an irony explored in Climatopolis the future of Los Angeles in the face of climate change. Folks, A weakness in Climatopolis. I I do a couple of case studies in Climatopolis. I talk in detail about the challenges that San Diego will face. I talk about the challenges that Los Angeles will face. But both to the credit of San Diego and New York City, those two cities have commissioned detailed reports on how climate change will affect their cities. Los Angeles, and I'm sad to admit this, Los Angeles has not commissioned a crystal ball study of how climate change will affect the metropolitan area. But let's do five dimensions of likely climate change impacts. And let me talk through, as a free market environmentalist, how a capitalist system will evolve in the face of each of these challenges. I want to talk about heat, increased heat. I want to talk about water scarcity. I want to talk about smog. I want to talk about sea level rise. And I want to talk about fires in Malibu, heat. Folks, does everyone remember that day when it was 113? So, so what, what month was that? That was recently. It was very recently. It was in the lower 70s in Malibu, and it, 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 on the same day there was a 40-degree temperature differential in L.A. In my vision, as I discuss in the Los Angeles chapter, we're going to rebuild Los Angeles in the more temperate part of the city. When I drive on Wilshire and Santa Monica, I see all sorts of commercial real estate which a kid from New York City says, why isn't there a 20-story high-rise building there? I calculate in the book, if we ripped out every golf course in West LA, how many people could live there in the temperate part of the city. I am a fan of golf. I'm still a fan of Tiger Woods. I look like John Daly. But my point is is to reimagine the city. John Lennon said imagine. I re just because our city has looked the way it does with its low rise with its cars doesn't mean it has to continue to look at this. My critics have said, "Oh, he's making the usual recommendations. LA needs more dense housing and more public transit." No, they've misread my book. Those are predictions about how Los Angeles will rebuild itself in our hotter world. If it's 120 degrees in Riverside, there'll be increased demand to live in the temperate zone in L.A., and we will build up in those locations. If local nimbyism blocks new growth, then we're going to have to think about local land use controls and ways to encourage the efficient use of scarce resources. Land in L.A., in temperate parts of the city, closer to the ocean, but outside the flood zone. I lived in New York City for years in high-rise buildings. You can live like that and they can be built without earthquake risk. The nerds at UCLA have figured out how to do that. (laughs) Water scarcity. People make the point, the correct point, that LA faces a water issue. We're in a desert. Uh, Climate change may melt the Sierra Nevadas. There's interesting issues of supply and demand for water. Folks, what does an economist say to increase scarcity caused by climate change? Let prices rise, give peace a chance. The price of a gallon of water in Los Angeles right now is a half cent a gallon. Try to buy a Budweiser for that. There's a reason so many people have green grass and swimming pools in this town. And as an economist, people make better choices when they face the social costs of their actions. If we allow water prices to rise in LA, The scarcity problem would vanish people would like my like what my wife did She's from Berkeley and we've adopted a Berkeley zero water landscape outdoors and all of our neighbors think we're crazy The water scarcity problem in LA would vanish overnight if water prices rose There's ways to protect the poor against price gouging. I'm happy to talk this through with you, but in my world as water prices rise households would economize on water they would, make, they would demand more water-efficient durables, toilets and other appliances that use water. And the, the miracle of capitalism would come out with cleaner, more energy-efficient and water-efficient products. Folks, sea level rise. There's certain parts of Los Angeles, and it, most of the parts of California at risk from sea level rise, according to the Pacific Institute, are, in a, are up in San Francisco. It's the job of the GIS, the mappers, to show which parts of California are most at risk from sea level rise. Folks, what does an economist say there? There, let's get the insurance industry involved. Would any for-profit insurance firm sell you a cheap premium if there's a 99% chance of sea level rise where you live because of, of climate change? No. So we actually need An incentive to get people to not live in flood zones is to allow the insurance industry to actually price gouge. To actually allow them to charge higher prices than we've seen in the past would discourage people from living in flood zones. And what I would encourage as a free market economist is if you want to live in a flood zone, you have to build your house out of materials that don't flood or that are resistant to flood, and then you would get a discount. At UCLA, uh, Tom Maine is working with Brad Pitt to build floatable homes which he hopes to sell for $180,000 each under the expectation that there will be future Hurricane Katrinas and that the next one that hits New Orleans would cause less damage if there, if, if there were more of these homes. Fire. It's been claimed that climate change will increase fire in the Malibus and in other areas at this uh, forest-urban interface. Similar solution with insurance again. If you want to live in a fire zone, you have to purchase more expensive insurance. The insurance industry has the right incentives because they go broke if they charge prices that don't reflect the underlying risk. The insurance industry has the right incentives to charge higher prices for premiums, and this will send signals to people. So in my world, insurance would be more expensive in those parts of Los Angeles, just like insurance is more expensive in earthquake zones, Insurance should be more expensive in those parts of Los Angeles at greater risk because of climate change, and those areas not at risk, according to the climate scientists, should have a price discount, and that would provide an incentive to build housing in the safer parts of the city, and collectively, that aids adaptation. Homer Simpson versus Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock, we don't worry about. The rational Vulcan. Anticipating climate change makes a series of, takes a series of proactive steps to protect his family. Rather than being a passive victim in the face of the expected challenges we face, he migrates to a safer area, he builds his home out of safer materials, he has access to a whole set of coping strategies in the face of climate change. If we are concerned that there's other people, uh, so Rush Limbaugh has made fun of me on his radio show, Uh, If you want to see something funny, Google Matthew Kahn and Rush Limbaugh and take a look at our fight with each other. And that's um, where I I had written a paper that used uh, Google to document in those states where the unemployment rate is rising, people are less likely to use Google to search for global warming. And that paper by me got Rush Limbaugh very upset. But uh, for those who deny climate change or just are not following the issue at all, Will they have a day of reckoning when the bad days that I anticipate will happen will unfold? I'm even optimistic for this group because again as I alluded to before the theory of innovation and entrepreneurship if there are just a few Entrepreneurs at Stanford and UCLA and other leading universities who anticipate coming days of pain and agony for others you can make a fortune selling products to those people to help them at that point it's like selling lemonade on a hot day you can make a lot of money and charge the price you want to pay, pay you you want pay, to be paid there's an opportunity there and this anticipation as i talk about in climatopolis the anticipation of coming days of reckoning even if this isn't common knowledge if just a few entrepreneurs know this we don't folks we all benefit from google but did you know how to program that up We only needed a couple of nerds to know how to make Facebook, Google. They knew that you wanted this, and they delivered. And that's how capitalism works. Politicians and policy. There we face very interesting issues as Los Angeles. There are winners from the status quo if we don't allow insurance prices to rise in fire zones, if we don't allow water prices to rise, even in the face of scarcity. There are winners from the status quo. Will politicians be proactive? Folks, Mike Bloomberg in New York City, he won't be mayor in 2030, but he just commissioned a major crystal ball study. So if you type into Google, Bloomberg, and plan New York City 2030, he's asking the New York City nerds at Columbia University to come out with detailed plans of how every inch of New York City will be affected by climate change. I talk about that in the New York City chapter of Climatopolis. It remains an open question how that information will affect private choices of Don Trump's and Derek Jeter's, how it will affect the choices of municipal government, but at least he's collecting that information. This is a first step in being proactive in the face of change. Folks, I have two last comments. Several pieces of the media have reviewed my book, including The Economist, The Financial Times, The New York Times, Just recently, uh, the Los Angeles Times, in a very strange review. I hope Emily Green is here to discuss her review. I'm looking for her. (laughs) My book is about incentives. That word was not in her review. She said, I don't know how to spell the mayor's name. She said that I am not an expert on Salt Lake City. I plead guilty. My book is a book about incentives and the belief among economists that when you have, that climate change will create out of just self-interest and protecting yourself, climate change, the anticipation that climate change could cause great damage to our families, gives us the right incentives to do the research, to be attuned to new information generated by the climate scientists, to minimize the risk we collectively face. My critics have thrown some good punches. They said, you know, Khan talks, so the economist said he's not funny. And that hurt very bad, because I, I, I wanted to read a, a page or two to you. The, the book tries to be funny. So the Economist said, he's not funny. And that hurt. They then said, he's not smart, or not as smart as he thinks he is. And, and that hurt. And that got my mother mad. <laughs> they pointed out the following truth. In my book, my publisher... Did, did any of you read the book of Lists as younger people? So in the 1970s, there was these books of lists, of uh, people who died on the toilet, and, 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 and we are videotaping. We, the, so to make my publisher happy, I named names of those cities. I said, here's five cities who I think are pretty resilient to climate change. And be, my publisher said, Matt, this will help sales in those cities. And in fact, uh, Salt Lake City is now blogging about the book, saying we don't believe any of this climate change stuff, but this coastal guy thinks we're a pretty cool city. And I named Moscow. Why did I name Moscow? It's to the north and it's off the water. And my deep concern about sea level rise and the unpredictability, if that's a word, of sea level rise made me focus on cities inland. There was a terrible heat wave in the summer of 2010 (laughs) that killed thousands in Moscow. Not funny, a tragedy. People have said, Khan is no Nostradamus. He he didn't foresee this heat wave. Why should we listen to any of his predictions? And what I've said to my critics, and you can read this if you Google Matthew Kahn in Moscow, is the following. I speak in riddles to my students. I say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The real test of Climatopolis is not that thousands died from that unexpected heat wave. Folks, there's that song by the rock band The Who, We Won't Be Fooled Again. Now that the people of Moscow have tasted a heat wave, The prediction of Climatopolis, I'm going to wave my books. Is this some Jimmy Stewart movie? um, The prediction of Climatopolis is that self-interested men and women will buy an air conditioner. They will bring in green architects to redesign their buildings now that they have suffered the pain of a heat wave. And I have bet some of people who have attacked me that future heat, a silver lining of the Moscow heat wave is that fewer people will die from future heat waves. That is the test of, uh, that is the market test of proactive optimism. If we're passive victims, I punch you in the nose, you say, oh, I threaten to punch you again, and you just sit there and do nothing. A serious person, after being punched in the nose once, either takes some boxing lessons, learns to duck, or pays a bully to knock me out. You have a set of strategies to protect yourself when you face the same challenge twice. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me the test of Climatopolis, it, the silver lining of disasters is, is in their salience of how it wakes us up. of what, So Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, he made that movie to try to shock us into action to mitigate carbon and to, 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 to recognize climate change as a real threat. Some say he overdid it. There's interesting issues of what do we find salient? What does it take to wake up a slightly sleepy populace? And there can be a silver lining from such natural disasters. So again, the test of Climatopolis is when we are shocked, what actions do we take to protect ourselves so that we don't suffer as much from the next one? Because climate change, like in New Orleans, is gonna hit us with more shocks of greater intensity. A proactive, forward-looking people Take steps proactively to be ready, folks. Last point: Titanic redux. So I never saw Leo DiCaprio's movie, but as it's been explained to me in uh, 1912, there were a bunch of people aboard a ship, a ship that couldn't sink. An iceberg was spotted, and uh, uh, but it never occurred to anyone that an iceberg could sink this ship. And by the time they spotted the iceberg, it was too late. I talk in Climatopolis in a bad, mixed up analogy that this makes no sense, that we are not the Titanic. We, are, are, we, we, have, we know that we don't know what climate change has in store for us. If we're risk averse, and we've shown that we are, we buy insurance, we take a whole bunch of steps like locking our homes at night, not going out at night if you think you're in a tough neighborhood. We take steps to protect ourselves. You only live life once, you have the right incentives. To be proactive when you face a known but unknown challenge of climate change. And so on that note, does anyone want to name a page? And we'll see if there's anything funny on that page. (laughs) 58. 58. See if I talk about my mother. Although coastal cities are beautiful, if we really do fear what climate change has in store for us, many of us will move inland. If we're convinced that climate change will take place gradually, meaning that we will not wake up one morning and find that the sea level has risen two feet, then we can wait and see. If climate change does raise the sea level, we will retreat from the coasts and invest in raising the structures that are close to the coast. So what I meant by that was that, uh, how many people saw the first Superman movie where, where Lex Luthor was investing in that territory just east of California as he was getting ready to nuke California? So Lex Luthor was, I talk about that in the book. So, tough crowd. (laughs) Folks, one more page and then I will wrap up talking about carbon mitigation. (laughs) 123, people are regretting coming out. There's nothing inherently productive about Manhattan. It's soil and climate do not foster productivity. Despite these facts, it attracts the very best lawyers, doctors, financial experts, and executives in many fields. It's a productive place because of the selective set of superstars who choose to work there. So, folks, and I say the same thing about Los Angeles, so nobody get me. <laughs> Los Angeles and New York City are superstar cities because Kobe Bryant and my colleague Ron Artest live here. A city like Detroit is poor because the skilled do not want to live and work there. If a city, and I skip this point under city competition, If a city were foolish enough to not address climate change, and if climate change started to throw body blows at it, the mobile footloose skilled will leave, and that city will become Detroit today. The golden goose of cities today are attracting and retaining the skilled. The the key for why some cities are rich and others are poor is not having a port or having the steel industry. San Jose was not rich in the recent past, it is attracting and retaining the skilled, the footloot skilled value quality of life. Climate change is likely to shake up the rankings of which cities are hot and which cities are not. And that actually creates strong incentives for mayors, even, even Republican mayors who may not believe in climate change. But if their voters believe that it's an issue and they're worried about losing their golden goose tax base, they actually have incentives to be proactive. And this is the logic of competition. Folks, let me wrap up on AB 32, and then I'd love to open it up to questions. There's going to be, I believe, the elections on Tuesday. I am on record as a strong supporter of AB 32. And so there's a zillion things to keep straight. We're supposed to oppose Prop 23, and we're supposed to support AB 32. And I... Let me explain. And it's related to the conclusion of the book. And I... It would be hypocritical of me to push my political views on anyone, but let me explain, and this is a good conclusion. The whole world is not taking action to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We need somebody to step up and be a leader. We need someone to, 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 be, to, to be the guinea pig, the green guinea pig. And so what I've blogged about is what I love about California's nascent AB 32 is that we, with our liberalism, our high income despite the recession, our high education, we are volunteering to be that guinea pig for the world. And I have asked the rhetorical question, are we a hero or are we a sucker? Why aren't we free riding like everybody else? And I think that we're a hero here. There's a question, in capitalism, the hallmark of capitalism are new goods. Diet Coke, blackberries, uh, my new book, hair pieces. Capitalism is always coming out with new products. We need somebody to experiment and buy the first generation of these products to give entrepreneurs an incentive to design these. If there was no market, and if nobody wanted an energy efficient car, no one would do the upfront research to come up with one. So California, and once a good idea is discovered, it becomes a world public good that can diffuse to India, China, and everywhere. So the key, we need, we need the win-win of world economic growth and reduced greenhouse gas emissions. To uncouple greenhouse gas emissions from economic growth, we need game-changing new technologies. And those are only gonna come about if some major economy, I wish it was the whole world with a, a, a cap and trade, but that's not happening. I wish it was the United States through credible carbon incentives. But I think that California can start this green chain reaction. And it will be easier to adapt to climate change if we take more efforts now. So critics say, they say, green economists, do you know what you're saying? California is just a fifth of the nation, and the United States is just a fifth of the world. So if California turned off its emissions, that would just be a 4% reduction in the world's emissions, and India and China are quickly going to produce that anyway. The argument is, is our nerds, this Reese's Peanut Butter Synergy, between the the innovation, the venture capital, and Sacramento's politics will will create technological advance that can then diffuse across the whole world and decouple uh, economic growth from greenhouse gas production. And it will be easier to adapt. And my son will have a better life in 2050 in Los Angeles uh, if we take these actions now. Folks, thank you very much. With regard to your last point about the the guinea pig, would you say and maybe you do talk about this in the book, would you say it 's arguable that China i mean that maybe this is one of the, one of the, the small benefits uh, or the minor benefits of, of being a, in a totalitarian society that they are able to exercise a rate of change in which their strategies for implementing moving to sustainability are outpacing everybody else's. Is is that a valid argument? I mean, I've I've heard it around. I'm just not sure how much of it is is hype. This is a very important question. Will China, is Tom Friedman right? Will China get three steps ahead of us because democracy is gridlock and a green totalitarian government who makes a commitment to reduce its energy intensity, energy intensity is energy divided by the size of the economy, can take credible steps. There's some truth to that. I have blogged recently, the New York Times ran an article saying that it's a tragedy that China is offering low-interest loans and free land to their green entrepreneurs. I blogged recently that the New York Times has things backwards, that for, for years China stole our intellectual property, whether it's Microsoft Windows, Hollywood movies, an irony. China, if, if China makes a breakthrough in green tech, we'll steal it from them. And that this and that ideas are public goods and that I actually, because the United States is underinvested, even with Nobel laureate Stephen Chu as Department of Energy Secretary, we have underinvested China while pursuing its own national self-interest and agenda actually benefits the whole world through the green investments it's making recently. And so I actually applaud it. Uh, I realize that there's investors in California made worse off by this, and that's competition. But in terms of my goal of decoupling global greenhouse gas emissions from world economic growth, I salute the Chinese government. And the funny thing is, no good deed goes unrewarded. Folks, what radio show was I invited on after I wrote this? Chinese national radio. (laughs) They're good. What do you think of the work Al Gore has been doing on climate change? I've written another post, half-tongue-in-cheek, and I know we're being videotaped, where I argued that Al Gore is causing climate change. And here's the argument. <laughs> Folks, did climate change have to be a politically polarized issue? Republicans now define themselves by what they oppose. I wonder, and of, and of course I celebrate Al Gore's commitment, I mean, but, but hear me out. If I could imagine an alternative world, like in the Twilight Zone, where climate change was a national security issue, that both Republicans and Democrats, John McCain and, and Barack Obama, standing there together, agreeing. But when Al Gore wrapped this issue around himself, Republicans like the Sarah Palins and others define themselves by what they don't believe in. And so I, what I'm fascinated by is, is there a way to depoliticize this issue? And so I, so I salute Al Gore's, I know he has good intentions, but there have been unintended consequences. We're a democracy, and t- to make progress on environmental mitigation policy, we need the Republicans on board. My wife and I, my wife's an economist, have been in deep thought about how to appeal to Republicans, how to make intellectual pitches to them to increase their interest in environmentalism, and this is work in progress. Um, The question I have is a two-part question, which is, one, um, which countries do you feel are doing better than the United States right now uh, in terms of um, climate mitigation and climate uh, adaptation? And do those countries practice capitalism in the way the United States does? If they do not, I'd like to know the evidence basis for your faith in consumer capitalism in the U.S. style, which seems to be based... On these kind of endless cycles of consumption, fueled by financial and asset bubbles, and arguably the uh, part of the reason why the United States per capita has some of the worst uh, carbon footprints of anyone in the country, uh, anyone on the planet, is because of that overconsumption. So, what is the basis of your faith in you know U.S. style consumer capitalism to solve the problem? I have some quote which says the delicious irony here is that capitalism has caused climate change but will help us to adapt to climate change. Let me unpack his questions, because all of these questions are excellent, but but he he bundled several good shots in a minute, so I I deeply respect that. And I um, have have a deep respect for for, uh, USC even without Pete Carroll. And that's, um, (laughs) to his first point, nations that have have done better than the United States, there's many, I wish that the United States had Europe's density and gasoline taxes, uh, and, and I talk about that in the book. And, that that I, And of course, w- w- the political equilibrium, of course, is that that's not possible, no new taxes. But I would love to see the United States have the taxes that I saw in Rome gas taxes and in England, you get a smaller vehicle fleet, you have a constituency using public transit, you have people living in high-rise housing, you have less suburban sprawl. He's absolutely right. On the topic of which cities around the world have been able to adapt, I'm in discussions with the World Bank about how to do that. I think that that's an excellent question. I published a paper a couple of years ago called The Death Toll from Natural Disasters. Chile and Haiti both suffered earthquakes a couple of years ago. Chile's was much worse on a Richter scale than than Haiti's, but many more people died in Haiti than in Chile. So a point of my 2005 paper, The Death Toll from Natural Disasters, is that richer nations are better able to to withstand the same shock for the usual reasons, better zoning, living in better buildings, better health care, better proactive warning systems. But his point, so so to, to, to his point, and to celebrate his point again, in the absence of a carbon incentive, in the absence of a carbon tax, capitalism, just as Jared Diamond said it would, has really jacked up greenhouse gas emissions. That's why chapter one is called too much gas. I would say that that's distinct. So I'm going to repeat myself, but I promise to wrap up. Capitalism is the villain. In the absence of a carbon incentive, capitalism is the villain in increasing greenhouse gas emissions. He's absolutely right. But for the reasons I sketched earlier, I am confident that capitalism helps us to adapt some of the consequences that climate change will pose. But I'd I'd be happy to speak with him more. And there's some truth to his point, and this is why we are a social science and debate. You mentioned being a proponent of raising the cost of water, but how would you ensure that people in poverty would have an adequate supply and have adequate access to what is uh, a necessary resource to survive? This is a crucial question, and my students at UCLA worked me over good on this very topic yesterday. And This is what I said to them, and they just sneered at me, but they wrote it down. <laughs> there would be a two-step process. I If I were our king, and I know that no one would vote for me, I I do, wait, I will not say that on tape. The the first step would be to talk to a human rights advocate who is trained in public health and to ask him or her, what is the basic water allotment a person needs to have a good day? Suppose that that's a hundred gallons and I'm just making up a number. It would be the responsibility of a free market environmentalist. Whatever is the price of water, we would need to write a check to every poor person who qualifies so that they could afford that basic bundle of 100 gallons at the new market price. Because he's absolutely right. If we allow water price gouging, but we don't provide the poor with supplemental income, they could die under this regime. And so what economists would say, and this is an old idea of Milton Friedman's, is to make the poor whole, to keep their purchasing power up in the face of the new pricing incentive. Give them enough new income so that they could afford that baseline bundle even facing the free market price. Now you might call me a pie-in-the-sky dreamer saying that no politician would implement that, but I would insist that we implement both policies for the reasons he alluded to. You talk a lot about incentives Is there a place for mandates? In other words, if we have people that wanna buy in flood zones or fire areas, it seems that insurance really will only work if you mandate that people buy that insurance. Otherwise, their houses will burn up and then we'll all feel bad for them and then government will pay for them to move or build another house. I actually want to do some research with the insurance industry. And so so this issue pops up with health insurance, that healthy people don't want to buy insurance, and so we get adverse selection, that the the old joke, uh, the, the average person who wants insurance is sicker than the average person in society, and insurance companies lose money on that group. You're telling an interesting economic argument of sort of moral hazard. People who anticipate that the feds will buy them out Wall Street, knowing that they were too big to fail, what did they do, my friends? We know. And so Chicago economists, including Casey Mulligan, said there should have been no bailout of Wall Street at all. Teach these guys a lesson, be, be credible. And, and people said to the University of Chicago, what are you smoking? But, but, but you are raising a key issue that if you anticipate a moral hazard, if you, it, a person is more likely to smoke in bed if they know that if their house burns down, somebody will buy them a new house. And so to some degree, this is the element of tough love. And so I actually talk about tough love in the book, in the case of, in St. Louis, of not, uh, about development in flood zones and of of federal insurance, FEMA not bailing these guys out so that they bear the true costs of their actions. So there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Um, I'm wondering if you could expand a little more on the politics and policy at the local level in Los Angeles, um, particularly... um Thinking towards how we can push our politicians and leaders um, to start thinking about mitigation, um, what land use you know, decisions we can make now before the city gets knocked on its head a few times. One of my goals as a statistical nerd, and I know that I share this with the leadership of the Luskin Institute, is that we come up with benchmarks. So Santa Claus knows who's naughty and nice. There's fascinating issues of whether concerned voters have benchmarks for how their politicians are doing. Uh, So with legislation like SB 375 so it would be terrific and I believe the Luskin Institute is doing this of measuring the carbon footprint of different cities within Los Angeles that that's the beginning of benchmarking so folks with teacher accountability President Obama has fought this tough fight of trying to judge who are the good teachers can we use test scores to judge good teachers can we use the change in test scores to measure which teachers have value-added I hope not you should see how my students do on my exams The um, (laughs) we need benchmarks. And so the quantification is art, not science, but with the beginnings of quantification. So if Matthew Kahn lived in Venice, what would my carbon, in Venice, Los Angeles, what would my carbon footprint be? If I lived in Sherman Oaks, what would it be? If for the same guy, I have a very different carbon footprint, this suggests that there's something about the place that is not helping us with mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. It's this sort of thought experiment. So you're absolutely right. Los Angeles has responsibility in terms of reducing its greenhouse gas emissions, that's mitigation, but also protecting the populace from the coming climate change challenge. AB 32 is mostly focused on mitigation. Uh, My book, of course, is thinking about our future Los Angeles and how to redesign it at the individual city, state, and federal level to have a safer society in the face of climate change. I wanted to ask you about personal responsibility. Um, I'm a little concerned that uh, the um, sort of more capitalist or economic-based approach, like this gentleman over here, um, is going to lead to an excess of resources. And will it take um, greenhouse gases and untapped resources to create these new technologies and goods and mitigation floating houses that you're talking about, and does that cancel out? Her question alludes to life cycle analysis. Sustainability. To me, the definition of sustainability is that my children and grandchildren, if they exist, will have at least as good a life as I had. There's fascinating issues of trade-offs. If a creature becomes extinct during my lifetime, but if we come up with a cure for some cancer... Has sustainability gone up or down? Don't ask me to answer that question, but these are the sort of riddles that, that faculty ask each other when we're drinking. <laughs> the, to her question, she asked a very fair question about life cycle analysis. So a major question at my institute is, is the Prius a green car? Some people have pointed out that to make the battery of the Prius has all sorts of life cycle implications that people fixated on greenhouse gas emissions have ignored. And so her question needs to be answered on a case-by-case basis. I I would say this, this is only a slight non sequitur, but but you alluded to natural resource depletion. I talk in the book about the following. Folks, imagine if entrepreneurs in this room believe that India and China, I do a calculation in the book, or at least I did, The, the editor was always removing my jokes and calculations. Folks, if seven, there's 7 billion people on the planet. If all of them bought a Hummer, which got 10 miles per gallon, and drove it 10,000 miles a year, you can double-check that we'd need 7 trillion gallons of gasoline a year. Can you guys say peak oil? I make my students chant. They say, peak oil. <laughs> I won't do that to you guys. Again, what's my point? If we anticipate that an unintended consequence of China and India's economic development and the rest of the developing world, that we're going to run out of conventional natural resources, that will stimulate our nerds now to double their efforts on the Tesla and electric vehicles. Because that will actually increase the demand for a product that can economize on those increasingly scarce resources. Implicit in the peak oil pessimism, is that we don't have forward looking expectations that we always make the same mistake unlike that bill murray movie groundhog day that we don't learn uh, that we don't learn we don't anticipate and so the anticipation of coming days of scarcity can actually trigger investment in innovation that actually means that we don't have that mad max that Mel Gibson, Mad Max and Thunderdome, he's, he's mad in Malibu, but, we, but when he was in those movies about fighting over the last gallons of gasoline. In your opinion, how much would the temperature have to rise before people living in wealthy countries would feel the consequences of it and not be able to deal with the consequences with their wealth? Is there a chance that we'll pass the tipping point before that becomes evident to them? And if we haven't passed the tipping point, what would be the actual cost of dealing with the problem in a real way, and not the things they're arguing about now, where they're just going to reduce it, you know, back to X percent below 2005 levels? My wife has rejected my urge to actually go to Baghdad and see what a 120 degree day is like. She said, "You you can go to Phoenix on the hottest day of the year." I. Your question is a crucial one, and it comes back to this salience. I think it's related to my question of sort of what wakes up a sleepy populace. Your question, I believe, is is really focused on what would be salient enough to get Rush Limbaugh to wake up, uh, put down his cigar, and say, whoa, may, maybe I was wrong. I've got a lot of millions in the bank. I, I, I've got family. Uh, maybe I was wrong on this. Is there an event such that he could be shocked into voting for Waxman Markey and pushing his army to vote, uh, pushing Republican senators to support such legislation. Is there such a salient event? When it's 120 out, what I'd like to know and what I spoke to the World Bank about is what do people do? In, In Spain, they have the siesta. There's a whole bunch of strategies that over the centuries people have come up with to protect themselves. I would want to attach thermometers to people in different countries of different income levels in different cities and then see what are they actually exposed to when outdoors are cooking. Is there a basement? Are there cooling facilities that allow them to stay cool? At UCLA School of Public Health, my colleague Hillary Godwin is working in immigrant communities in East LA to direct people who don't have cars, and many of whom don't speak English, of where are the cooling centers so that on the hottest days of the summer, these individuals aren't cooking out on the road, if they have the flexibility in their schedule, to head to cooling centers. I love your question, and I hope that there is a tipping a point event in terms of salience to nudge the median voter to support the regulation that President Obama wanted to pass. But President Obama is a very smart man. He didn't put any effort into this bill at all. He did not see uh, uh, his people, the the dancing Rahm Emanuel and and the acts, did not see any high returns. Uh, it, it It saw no traction with this issue. And so at least up to this point, there has not been a sufficiently salient event to push even the Democrats to make this investment. And so again, I think it is up to California's AB 32 to be the guinea pig so that we don't have to run this experiment of waiting till it's 120 degrees to begin our mitigation efforts. Uh, Thank you very much.